Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Our world is an incredibly dynamic place, and we have come to understand aspects of it over time. Since our entry into space, the technology we use to understand our planet has changed, the questions we ask, and the data we have to answer them. Widely available and powerful cloud computing infrastructure has changed the game again. We are able to use thousands of computers at once to get answers that would be incalculably expensive to process by other means. This is episode 15 of Location Matters, and today I, Adam Mullet, am joined by Managing Director of NGIS, Paul Farrell, and Director of Services, Nathan Eaton. So I want to talk about how we get answers from our planet, Paul. What are some of the tools and data services that have recently come online, and how do they all fit together? Well, um, the... The, the tools you're talking about have existed for, for decades um, and the, the data that they're inquiring has existed for many, many decades. And as you alluded to in your introduction, what has changed is the compute power to make it easy for people to use it in, in, uh, quickly and get answers from it. So, um, so it's nothing is new, but it is online, it is available, And it's only in recent times, probably the last five years, where the the compute power behind it has been sufficient enough to allow you to get answers quickly. And I'll give you an example of that. My, My thesis at university was in this field. It would take me weeks to get the answers that you can get in seconds right now. And that what that means is the level of science and the level of uh, inquisition on the data that you can make has uh, has increased dramatically um, because you're not just reliant on waiting two weeks. You can just continually play with the data to get the insight and the answers that you're looking for from the data. Nathan? Yeah, Paul's spot on. So the platforms to be able to use a lot of this content is really been where there's been a massive shift. So they're reducing some of the barriers to be able to use a lot of this really large-scale, big Earth observation data. And that's one of the key things in terms of being able to use this data more effectively. And what we have seen, as with cloud computing with competitors such as Azure, Amazon and Google and all the competition and results that that's driving, we're starting to see that a lot in the satellite market as well. So you've got traditional players such as Digital Globe, Airbus, that are now having to compete with new satellite providers using microsats and cubesats, which are very much disrupting the market and coming up with fit-for-purpose products that can be used for all sorts of applications. So there's there's more and more options, more and more competition, and then it's the platforms to be able to use all these different products where we're seeing some some significant advances in our industry. What are we looking at when how mature is this industry with all these new technologies, CubeSats, cloud computing? Where are we at with it? The the industry is quite mature. I mean, satellites have been up for uh, since since the, the the 40s and 50s, mainly for military use. Um, and data has been collected and publicly available since the mid-70s. Uh, and at, at the time, the US had satellites up, the Russians had satellites up, and they were, they were producing this, this, this data. Um, what, and, but 
in those early days, there was only a few options for data, really, that you could you, you could get access to. What you have seen, as Nathan alluded to, is an absolute explosion of options recently. So uh, you've got satellite imagery and you've got many, many, many different varieties of satellites and bands and resolutions. And then on top of that, you've got this plethora of different... Uh, airborne and drone related imagery that's being collected as well so when you meld all those things together you're getting an incredibly rich uh, amount of data and your your challenge now becomes how do you deal with all that because there's this 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 there's, there's too much so um, i think it's starting to get to a level of maturity now where you've got good good availability and variety and now it's about maturity and the insight that you grab from these systems I hate to agree with Paul again, but I do. I think we're probably about halfway. So I think if you look at the maturity of, of cloud workflows for spatial information and technology, the tools are there in terms of a generic IT sense. So you're seeing a lot of great products being available through the providers we talked about previously. Um, but there's still a bit of a gap with how we can use that for spatial purposes. I mean, spatial data inherently is big data. You know, we've been dealing with big data for a long time. And the ability to use cloud is then changing, having to bring the pixels down to the compute to be able to take the compute up to the pixels to essentially do more without having to have so many overheads. But there's still challenges there with data workflows, integration. There's still some extra steps that can remove further barriers to entry for spatial data. So I think we're about halfway. I, I actually remember... It probably was five, six, seven years ago when we started first putting significant imagery into cloud environments. Uh, we, we'd make these requests to these cloud providers to say, "Hey, we want to store this, you know, X, you know, three terabytes worth of imagery up here to have it available." And you'd get these questions back saying, "Surely you've made a mistake. You, 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 you're talking gigabytes, not terabytes here, aren't you? No terabytes." So I think. Now the cloud providers are starting to get their head around it, but we've moved from terabytes to petabytes now. So we keep raising the bar. And uh, like Nathan said, our industry has been dealing with big data before big data was big data. So, you know, they are monstrous amounts of of complex um, data that that needs a certain amount of power around it and and capability behind it to, to get the insight you need from it. I mean, it's interesting you say that this has been available since the 70s. What's fascinating for me about all this is that now people like me and you can start to play with the data. It's available to everyone and everyone can try things. And yet what we're facing at the moment is what's called truth decay, which is where you know certain parts of society believe that they can ignore authority, believe what they like, whether they be one-liners or something they believe in ideologically. Um, even if it's not backed by verifiable science, which, like I said, is now more available than ever. So a good example of this, of course, is the political deadlock around climate science, which is definitely a question around our planet. Now, other new tools that are available now, Nathan, are they going to be able to help with this? Yeah, definitely. So hashtag fake news. Um, I think at the end of the day, in the absence of the right tools, people will use what is easy. And that's been evident, particularly with the spatial industry. Um, So I think the challenge becomes we have all this great science, but we have a need to get this into the hands of the people that need to use it. That's the biggest challenge facing our industry, and particularly with government departments, with the the data programs they've got and the need for industry and other government departments to be able to use this data. 
So, and we've had a number of circumstances where people have been not happy with the tools that are being used, but haven't been able to come up with an approach for something that would be comparable. Mm. So that's the challenge. Instead of pointing the finger and coming up with reasons not to use a solution, bring your solutions up to that same standard so people want to use it. I mean, Google Maps is a perfect example. So it was in 2006 when Google Maps came out, and I remember the government departments and the talk around how it wasn't using the authority of data um, and how people shouldn't be using it at all. At the end of the day, people used it because it was easy, because it worked, because it was high-performing. So they then took the challenge up to government departments, well, give me the data the way that I want to be able to consume it. So I think that then becomes the challenge. It's not so much around people using the wrong tools, it's getting the right data in the right way to the people that need it. Yeah, I, th- I think um, with presenting, I mean, map data, maps are facts. So if you present facts, then people uh, find do not go into this world of, of interpretation and, and opinion. When, you, when you're looking at a map and it's a fact, and you're seeing something change and, and it's, it's their pictures, there's less discussion and ideological discussion. It's more than about, well, there's change happening here. Now, the whole debate about what's causing that change, well, you can get into that, but the fact is there's change and it's obvious. And that's where it was in 1980 and that's where it is today. So um, I think maps and the imagery that the satellites provide where they're going over on a regular basis and demonstrating that change help break down those um, ideological barriers and hopefully provide a more a firmer basis for the science to back up the science but hopefully as a communication tool also help um, allay those sort of opinions and, and, and just focus on the issue and the facts. Like you said before, Paul, that you know a few years back people were surprised when you were asking them to store terabytes of data. Now I read just the other day that Google's got was it like five terabytes of satellite imagery, which is there up for free. Peta. Along, sorry, petabytes. I apologise, petabytes um, available for free. They've got all this weather data, and and cloud computing gives us a chance now to actually work with those data sets. We don't have to work for the military. We don't have to work for the CSIRO. I mean, Nathan, why is this a game changer? This is a game changer, Adam, because remote sensing is becoming sexy again. No longer is remote sensing the domain of balding, overweight, middle-aged men sitting in the dark end corner (laughs) of the room trying to come up with answers that people don't understand. Um, We're now taking all of those pixels and producing answers from them, which is what remote sensing has always been about. It's not about the actual size of the data, the number of pixels. It's about the actual answers that come out of it and the value of those answers. So I think the approach that we talked about previously of of taking the compute up to the pixels and reducing those barriers to entry just to allow us to create more and more answers, to create better answers, to get better insights and then communicate with end users. So it's very much changing the way that remote sensing is done. Yes, and look, Google and Apple with their, um, their products that are aimed at consumers, there's two views you can look at. You can look at the map view and you can look at a satellite view. So now you've got the whole world who uses Google Maps, which is, you know, one to two billion, and I don't know how many is on Apple Maps, but there's a large proportion of the globe that have smartphones that have these maps 
on them. They've got satellite imagery of Al Alton, so they're getting used to seeing these things. And they're also getting used to seeing the fact that the image they have is two or three years out of date. So they've, they're now, they're actually wanting, they're using this, it's the best possible available, they're, but they're getting more inquisitive to go, uh, can I get something that's more um, uh, up-to-date and available and starting to inquire about this sort of stuff. So like Nathan said, the the, the, the guy with the PhD that's, that's balding, um, he is not the only person that's having to deal with this imagery and inquisitive about this imagery. It's everyday people. And just for the for purpose of the records, I have all my hair. <laughs> you are sitting in the corner. I am sitting in I am sitting in a corner and I'm definitely not a, a, a boffin. But but you are right, Nath. That that was the, the realm of remote sensing professionals and it's really back in the day is why I didn't pursue that career i got into the the broader gis spatial world is because that was the only path you could take was to become an academic in remote sensing so um but it's now it's available to everyone and the tools are becoming more and more accessible so the sense i'm getting is that you can do all this cloud computing it's really exciting but the best thing about it is that people can actually get access to it is that right access to it get answers run scenarios and do things with high-end cloud processing that would previously take months and months it's just changing the way we can actually use the data and get answers from it two tools that you've been the brand behind nathan are coastal risk and green precision and in the in different ways these have been very well received so green precision was the tool which been has now been applied um, commercially uh, and coastal risk australia was a great piece of pr for the company that showed people in a picture what all this big data means to them um, so walk us through these tools one by one and please just tell me why why are they game changers in their field well probably the similarity between the tools and projects is that they both use big data to build awareness at the end of the day for very different purposes so coastal risk australia was a joint initiative between ngis and the crc for spatial information now frontier si that was really aimed at communicating climate change science so very much aligned to what we've been discussing around taking massive data sets and distilling them down into answers for people. That was really the focus for coastal risk. So there's been a number of different studies and reports into climate change and predicted sea level rise. Um, the gap was actually taking that and making it easy for people to understand, which is what we tried to do. So coastal risk uses a massive coastal elevation model, 250,000 odd square k's from Geoscience Australia and then around 1,200 virtual tide gauges around the country to actually show, based on scientific research, what predicted sea level rise looks like. Um, and the ability to build awareness around what that looks like, but then for people to take it down to their community, to look at their street, when you actually personalise that data using Earth observations, that's how you build true awareness. Um, and maps, as Paul alluded to before, are a really easy way for people to understand this information. Now, at the back end of it, highly complex back end in terms of cloud processing and technical capability to do all this back end work. But at the end of the day, the actual application needed to be easy to use, which was the real focus for us. So that's been great. So that created a lot of uh, commentary and awareness around climate change, which was our focus. So the first step in, in any climate change mitigation or adaptation is having the right data to be able to make the right decisions with. And that's what we were on about. 
Green Precision was an agricultural focus, and this was really looking to help farmers understand, at a farm level, the variability across their paddocks. Um, pure and simple. So we did this initiative with CSBP, uh, the largest fertiliser player in, in WA in Australia. Um, and what they wanted to do was exactly that, take this mountain of earth observation data and actually distill it down into a picture of a farm on a month-by-month basis, year-by-year, so farmers can understand how their productivity is trending, uh, which parts of the paddock they're getting that return from, so they could actually then change their practices, put more fertiliser in one area, reduce fertiliser from another, reduce their inputs, optimise their inputs, and ultimately get better yield. But once again, it starts with building awareness and actually presenting the data in a way that people can understand it. So pretty similar in terms of the overall building awareness approach. Well, thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. If you do want to hear more episodes, head to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.